When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Hi, this is Chris D. from The Flesh Eaters, and you're listening to Deeper Digs in Rock. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. You got a friend in me, diggers. Christian Swain here, the rock and roll archaeologist, coming to you from the San Francisco headquarters of Pantheon Podcasts. Again, if you don't know, you can contact us through Facebook at uh, the RNRAP, Instagram at RNR Archaeology, and on Twitter also at RNR Archaeology. Hell, you can even call us. Uh, leave a message at 650 822 7625. Okay, it's shout-out time. Let's hear it for Luann Darris, who became our latest patron this week. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm horrible at Patreon, um, but I, I promise to get better. So I, I really appreciate Luann making the donation, even though I suck. But it's got me thinking. Uh, I have a ton of green room conversations with uh, a lot of the people that we've talked to. I think we will do something uh, about uh, that for our dedicated Patreon members and maybe some other promos and giveaways. Uh, we have uh, lots of books that are donated to us by the publishers. We need to do something with that. So uh, we've done some things uh, with our mail list, our email list, uh, and um, uh, we should do something with, uh, with our, our our patrons at Patreon. So uh, if anyone wants to follow good dear Luann's example and pledge a little help uh, to cover the costs of putting our shows out, we would greatly appreciate it. Go to patreon.com uh, backslash rock and roll podcast. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 12 shows on the network and the uh, Baker's dozen will round out uh, in the next uh, week or so. Uh, okay. So in order, uh, that's rock and roll archeology. span Well, not in any kind of particular order, rock and roll archeology, span rock and roll librarian, real rock muses, art of rock, vinyl snob, rock candy. This podcast kills fascists. Miss Pamela's pajama party, the career musician who cares about the rock hall, this show, deeper digs in rock. And now, 
coming very shortly. History in five songs with Martin Popoff. That makes 13, a baker's dozen. Yes, yes, yes. You can count on more along the way. Um, We are always looking to add to our stable of artists. So if you know of someone that should be a part of our staff, please let us know. Okay, okay. Um, Real quick, we've got to talk about this. Uh, I got to introduce you to Nugs.net. Nugs.net is the destination for live music on demand. They have a growing collection of over 15,000, yes, 15,000 full-length concert recordings from bands like Pearl Jam, Metallica, Dead & Company, oh, just about anybody you can think of. So you'll never run out of live music to explore. You can listen to a show from last night or from 40 years ago. I uh, recently watched The Wailers from the Wayne Music Festival uh, and had a great time letting the neighbors know my musical tastes. So <laughs> let me tell you, there's something for every music fan to explore. It's available on desktop, iOS, and Android apps, Sonos, and Blue OS. Just like us here at Pantheon, the folks at Nugs.net are live music fanatics. So they are offering new subscribers a 35% discount on an annual subscription. Go to nugs.net backslash deeper digs and sign up today. And if you already have a subscription, hey, give the gift of live music to a friend. Again, nugs.net backslash deeper digs for 35% off an annual subscription. All right, let's get to our guest. Diggers, we are expanding the horizons today. We have a very special guest, hip-hop pioneer, executive extraordinaire, and producer, Chris Schwartz. Chris, along with Joe Nicolo, most famously created and ran Roughhouse Records, a subsidiary label for Columbia in the 1990s heyday as hip-hop was overtaking rock as a dominant music force and when the recording industry was at peak power. He began as a musician with one of the only Roland TR-808s in Philly, and because he was so great at programming it, got him work with early rap and hip-hop acts in town. If you don't know, the uh, TR-808 was one of the first drum machines to allow users to program rhythms instead of using just preset patterns. This was a proverbial game-changer. One day, he was presented with a choice, uh, continue as a musician with a modicum of success or become a producer, which was actually getting paid. You'll hear that story and many others in today's interview. He then managed what is now recognized as the first gangster rapper, Schoolie D. Uh, through that work, he was noticed by the big suits at Columbia and Roughhouse was born. 
While there, he signed and worked with big names in the burgeoning hip-hop world. Along with Def Jam, Bad Boy, and Jive, Rough House was one of the foundational cornerstones in East Coast hip-hop. We are talking Cypress Hill, Criss Cross, Nas, DMX, and most famously, the Fugees with Wyclef Jean and Miss Lauren Hill. Unfortunately... Roughhouse lasted just 10 years and closed up in 1999. He went on to work for Warners, consulted with Sony, and got into the film industry. And then in 2012, with the new record business being reinvented with streaming as the backbone, relaunched Roughhouse with the backing of EMI. It's all in Chris's new memoir, Roughhouse, from the streets of Philly to the top of the 90s hip-hop charts, being released this week and published by Diversion Books. Uh, real quick, before we start, we, we had a few technical issues at the very beginning of the interview, but we quickly worked them out. Please forgive the interruptions, and it's only in the first few minutes. All right, let's dive into the hip-hop music scene of the 80s and 90s and learn something from producer and record executive Chris Schwartz. Schwartz, welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Christian. How are you doing, sir? I'm fantastic. I, I really enjoyed your book. And, uh, you know, let's just dive into it. And I'll tell you, it starts off with a harrowing account of your childhood growing up in the Philadelphia suburbs. Um, I, I think the only word to describe it is torture. Can, can you explain to our listeners kind of what, what your early life was like? You know, it's funny. It's I don't I at the time it was kind of hard to describe because I didn't have any other lives to compare it to. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's just the and, existence you knew. Yeah. It's the existence I knew. And um, it was very difficult, you know, uh, especially like when I had a lot of friends who who had like normal families and everything. And you'd go over to their houses and it was quiet and peaceful and everybody was like, you know, just normal. And, uh, you know, it just uh, it, it, it was it was rough. It was hard. Well, Very you, hard. You, you had you had a couple of older brothers um, yeah. who, you know, attacked you on a on a continual basis. Yeah. Uh, to the point of putting you in the hospital a couple of times. Yes. That's yes. that's just atrocious. I was just absolutely floored and shocked when I read that, that, you know, and your parents really didn't or couldn't do anything about it. I, I'll tell you this. I think. And I, I know this has got no, to be difficult no, to talk no, no, about. No, no, no. I don't mind. I know. I'll tell you this. I, I'll tell you. First is my 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 mother, you know, uh, my mother had a lot of problems and 
you know, I I harbored a lot of anger and resentment towards her for for many, many, many years. And, you know, and yeah, but the thing is, like, you know, when you when you really start to talk about it, you talk to people that, you know, people that you trust and everything, you, you know, I, I, it, I started to piece it together that and I started to find out things about her childhood and what she had gone through. And I realized that, you know, life wasn't a cakewalk for her to begin with. And my father, uh, my father was actually a really, really great guy. I think the thing is, my father just didn't want to believe that some of, some of his, his kids were, had problems, you know? Um, you know, and the thing is, is that when you, when you, when you live in this like violent atmosphere, and it's like brutality and violence are just like a, a are just second nature. You know what I mean? And I think what it was for for some of my brothers is that I don't think they realized like, you know, like they didn't it, it didn't really occur to them how how messed up it was. You know what I mean? To them, it was just like. This you is know, just normal life in the way this that, that yeah. this is how you control the situation with a large family. I mean, I think you grew up in a, a family of yeah. 10, 10, 10 siblings, kids, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that they were, when, when mom and dad weren't around, they were in control and in charge. And this is how they went about it. Well, yeah. I mean, well, the thing is, uh, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't out of any sense of uh, benevolence and wanting to, you know, maintain a proper household. It was basically a, um, it was a it was a justification, you know, um, you know, and I, I talked about my brother, Kevin, you know, he, he basically, as I said in the book, he fashioned himself this like surrogate disciplinarian when it was really what it was about was to, as I said, for him to live a carefree, comfortable life. He wanted everybody to be at his beck and call, you know, right, right. Uh, it was nothing for him to. um you know, to be told to, to say, Hey, I want you, even though it's two o'clock in the morning, I want you to go to the Seven Eleven and get me a slice of cheesecake, you know? And, and you were just expected to do so. Yeah. I just expected to do it. Wow. But, but there was it, no, there was, it, there was it, no, there was no, you know, yeah. It's it, it just, you know, you complied uh, as best you could until you got old enough to, you know, just make yourself invisible. Right. Yeah. So, so basically, you know, as, as I, as I say in the, in the book, it was like, I, I would stay away from home as, as much as I could. So I, I didn't go home from school. I would go and stay at, you know, a friend's house as long as I possibly could. And I, I actually spent a lot of time wandering the streets. Uh, I spent a lot of time walking up and down, you know, railroad tracks. Um, I would leave, my house sometimes at like five in the morning and I just wouldn't, would not want to be there. And if I got home at night, if their cars parked in the driveway, I checked the, the, I feel the hoods to see how warm they were, you know, know. just gotten home and said, and I grab a lawn chair. Sometimes I've sat in the wood for hours, you know, Uh and that was just my, it was like survival, you know? Um, and you know, at the time, you know, uh, I would I would show up to school banged up. Of course. But this was in the this was in the 70s. And back then, you know, nobody asked questions. There wasn't any, you know, there wasn't a it's not like it is now, 
You know yeah. what I mean? No, I, I I grew up in the same system. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, everybody kept to themselves. It was you know very yeah. waspy. That 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 waspy yeah. sort of like uh, it's none of my business, so I'm not going to say anything. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, uh, it, it must have. Uh, I I guess in some ways, you know, it it made you who you were, uh, or who you are. You um, you didn't turn to that yourself, but no. it it in some ways, you know, you had to be resilient. You had to be patient. Uh, you had to learn to do on your own at a very young age. Yeah, yeah. I um, it you know, it's it's funny um. I think about, you know, when I'm, when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 14 years old and it's, you know, 22 degrees out freezing yeah. Yeah. and I'm trying to picture my daughter sitting in my, my daughter at the time, 14 years old, sitting in the woods cause she's too scared to come inside. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you would never allow that to happen. Yeah. And it just, it's so, and that's the thing now. I mean, uh, it's funny, funny, you know, my brothers now are all, you know, I'd see him at family functions and, you know, and, and it's not like I, I, I don't talk to him or anything like that, but I'm trying to, you know, envision them treating their own kids like that in this day and age. You know what I mean? And of course it never, it wouldn't, it would never happen. No, they know? couldn't get away with it. Uh, you know, no, they, Child I protective services but, would be there in a heartbeat. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, it's, uh, but it, it, it did, it did uh, give me a lot of resilience, though. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so as soon as humanly possible, you escaped and joined the Navy for a three-year yeah. stint, uh, where your interest in music, uh, I, I think, really began to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because I was around other musicians. Um, you know, but I think people would be surprised at how many people in the service are musicians. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a lot of musicians walking the streets, but, um, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was, I, I wasn't expecting that to tell you the truth. Well, and, and it also, uh, expanded your horizons. You met a lot of people from a lot of different parts of the country. Yes. You yeah. Know, and, and, and various musical backgrounds, uh, uh, beyond them, beyond what you knew in, in, in your, your little world in suburban, uh, Philadelphia. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, uh, you know, meeting people from, you know, meeting people from the South, uh, people from, you know, uh, middle America, uh, you know, and, and, you know, meeting a lot of, a lot of, you know, people from urban areas and, you know, and the thing, it was, what was kind of stra- strange for me. And I mean, I guess it was strange because, you know, when I, when I, I grew up in a, an area, like in my high school, I think we had like, you know, out of, you know, whatever, five, six, seven hundred kids, there was probably about 14 African-Americans. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so now I'm, you know, now I'm in a situation where, you know, in the service, just about all of my friends were African-American, you know? Yeah. And and uh, so I I I guess by, you know, they're they're what they're into and they're and what they're their cultural um, orientation in terms of like music and everything. I just absorbed it because I liked it, you know, and it, it, I, it, I found it, you know, I, my, it drew my inclinations and, um, and actually from a pure standpoint of musicality, uh, you know, I would, 
really get into the idea of like, you know, I would see these, you know, these guys, African-American guys, guitar players, right, who who would play guitar without using a pick, right? Just and, fingers, yeah. Yeah, and just like, like their thumbs and everything and fingers and everything. And that used to like, it, it fascinated me, you know? Yeah, and it did, and it drew, it, it drew me to to want to learn more about it and everything. Yeah, uh, you, you you I think you spent a little time in Florida. I think you did your basic there, and then you ended up uh, doing your schooling in uh, in Memphis. And and you you thought you were going to get uh, a lot of opportunity to to uh, hang out in Memphis, which I don't think happened. Yeah. But but in the in the end result was uh, you did so well uh, that you got to pick uh, your station. Uh, anywhere in the world, and and, and you yeah. chose California. Wise choice. Um, now I, I am from California. Oh, we're we're talking from San Francisco, and I know where Lamore is. Yes. Okay. All right. So why did you pick Lamore Naval Air Station? I'll tell you why. Because it was the closest duty station to Los Angeles, and. It was between, yeah, there, there was San Diego, but somebody had already taken it. Oh, and I so think you didn't, you was get closer Sandy, than right. Sam, I'm not sure. Um, no, yeah, no, the yeah. first, the guy who, there was one guy ahead of me and he wanted San Diego. Okay. So, so that, so, but, the, but by proxy, I suddenly had the choices. I could have gone to Hawaii. I could have gone to Gu- Gitmo Bay, Guantanamo Bay, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. and I chose Lemoore. But another thing too was that they had these like like these pamphlets showing these places, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Before, I'll never forget this. <laughs> it was like uh, it was like four pictures, right? Mm-hmm. Like kind of like a collage together, like like you know, and it showed like a person canoeing on this beautiful lake and waterfalls and sequoias and this whole very like a Shangri La. Yeah, which is about two and a half hours away, uh, I guess, from the morning. You can get up to Yosemite. You can see the sequoias from where we were. Yeah. But yeah. it was so far away, it was unbelievable. <laughs> but, yes, and as I said in the book, the uh, the realization was when when my, my sister Meg, who lived in Los Angeles at the time, um, she, she and her husband drove me up, and we drove up I-5, and we got off the exit. The, for Fresno and drove Lemoore and we're driving. And I just, it was unbelievable because I knew we were getting close and all it was was just flat, open, like large scale industrial Farms. farming yeah. <laughs> for just dirt for like far as the eye could see. Yeah. And little popping oil rigs, you know, yeah. I, that, yeah. that was like, that really stuck out in my mind. And uh, that first night on base, I was just, uh, I just, I was so, I was really, I was just really depressed, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I'll never forget too, like that smell of insecticide, you know? I didn't yeah. know what that smell, I'd never smelled it before, you know? Uh-huh. And I found out the next day it's because what they used on the, these industrial farming tracks, they used all this insecticide. And, uh, yeah, so that ended up in Lemoore. Yeah. Yeah. But you, I think you got in your first real band there, right? Yep. My first band. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, an actual Navy band. Yeah, Navy band. You uh, so you learned uh, you learned how to work in a group. Yes, uh, yeah. And the thing is, and and it was funny because in the in the and I said in the book that uh, that I I was able to start this band with musicians who were 
far, far superior than me. Right. In, in, in time. But, you know, as I said, for them, it was a diversion. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, all right, yeah. So and an ability to get out of, uh, you know, some shitty duty and uh, yeah, be able to go and play. Yeah. yeah. We did do, I didn't go into too much detail about it in the book, but we did get to do a lot of stuff like that. We did get to, um, we would do, uh, I play Glockenspiel for, for, in the, uh, for like, you know, Admiral Flyance and stuff, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so that was cool. You know, I mean, for, for me at least. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but the, the thing is for me that I really enjoyed was that, you know, we we played music every night. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. I would, yeah. you know, I'd spend all day, you know, on the tarmac loading bombs, rockets, missiles, aircraft, servicing aircraft guns and all that stuff. Yeah, because you're you an ordinance guy. Yeah, ordinance. Ordinance, right? Not yeah. ordinance. Ordinance. <laughs> <laughs> right? All right. Yeah, so, yeah. Fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so all was, day, all day long on the tarmac doing that in, uh, in, in those, those hot, uh, uh, summers, uh, out there in the central Valley oh. and, uh, loading up those, uh, uh, I, I think at that time you were probably dealing with F, uh, F-14s and, uh, it was, uh, I mainly, the plane I dealt with the most was the, the A7. A, oh, A7s. So, okay. All yeah, right. And then I was in the first F-18 squadron ever. It was oh, half. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, actually it was at Desi, it was VFA, uh-huh. uh, fixed wing fighter attack. Uh, VFA one twenty two, yeah. and uh, it was half Marines, half Navy, mm-hmm. and uh, we were a training squadron, mm-hmm. and uh, we had no planes, <laughs> so so we used a uh, we used A sevens to teach you know because the same armament same armament cal and all that stuff and um, and uh, I I left just as I think the first three planes got shipped there. The first, and, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then yeah, that was like that was like 1980, right? 81, somewhere there. That was uh, 1981. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you leave the Navy, head back to Philly with dreams of becoming yep. a professional musician. Uh, yep. And and it seems like your influences uh, back uh, back home now are are more more electronic and eclectic. Uh, you know, I. I I have to ask you about some of your influences because I mean, you 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 talked Kraftwerk and Robert Fripp and yeah. things like that. That how did you get into that? Well, uh, my best friend that I you know who was whose house I pra- I lived at practically. Um, you know he he was a drummer, and uh, you know we were both we met in uh, junior high in art class because we both bought in records by Zappa. And I was a I was a Zappa fanatic all my life okay. because I, there you I go. Mm-hmm. loved I loved the and the thing is and what was it was a great thing about Zappa if you were a Zappa fan is that you 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 ended up buying a lot of music because then you'd see somebody that played with Zappa playing in some other group. Yeah, you know Warren I mean? Cucarulo like, and uh, you know yeah, George Duke and uh, you know uh, uh, Ian Underwood on and on. Yeah, Eddie Jobson. Eddie uh, Jobson, right? You know, and he's not, yeah, and these guys played in other bands, and then so the thing is, though. But I, when I was out the service, I was just like still in like in my whole world of Zappa. When I got home, Jeff had like, oh well, Zappa's still who he is. Chris is wonderful, but look at all these other. And then so he's turning me on to Gong, you know, David yeah. Allen's Gong, Pierre Morlen's Gong, uh, and then you know, 
obviously all the German groups, which I loved, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole electronic part was really more of like a a thing. It was just to, it was very it was interesting, you know. It just drew my my interest. It's um, I liked all the possibilities that it offered me as a you know I uh, I I'm I'm a decent musician on some level, but I'm just not I'm not you know. Um, on the level of most of the people who I get, know, who, who get signed and like the people that you signed uh, later on in your career, uh, you know, the real high level special musicians. Yeah. I, I know, know what I, you mean. I'm, I'm said, a great cover band musician, but yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I doubt uh, anybody would sign me uh, even in my day back in the twenties. I said on, on, on Facebook the other night uh, or the other, the other week I did this post where I talked about, you know, uh, you know, since I was a kid, I, I dreamed of being in a band mm-hmm. and that was the dream. Yeah. And, and I dreamed of being in a band and it was that pursuit of trying to get it signed. And, and, you know, and I did sign a record deal at one point um, and, and doing all that and failing at it that caused me to back up into like I suddenly ended up in the record business just almost by you know just by accident you know what I mean oh we'll we'll get to we'll get to that in yeah. a minute because that that's that's the story with Frank Virtue and Vince DeRosa uh yes. and, and I'll, I'll bring that up in a second but before that I, there, there there's a there's a special moment that in some ways, and especially for hip hop, uh, is is as important as maybe you know Leo Fender making the uh, the the Fender Stratocaster, uh, yeah. you know, or or even maybe even the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and that is the TR eight hundred eight, and yeah. you learned how to program that. Oh yeah, we we, we were the first. Uh, we were actually the first people like in Philly to own one. We had gotten it when it was still a prototype on the market mm-hmm. uh and the reason the reason we were up on it and we were we were like knowledgeable about it is because up until then uh drum programming was all pre-programmed and um you know most people like you know if you hear like a lot of the craft work stuff uh they had a lot of really like specialty equipment that they designed. Uh, it was all clock generated sequencers right. that, that, that mimicked like drum sounds and everything. And it wasn't like, you know, and then they did use some actual, like uh, they did use the rolling compu rhythm and everything. So when, when we had found out somehow early on that Roland corporation was coming out with a programmable drum machine it was like, uh, yeah, it was like to us, it was uh, an incredibly important invention, you know? Yeah, life And we mode. had yeah. Apple, and we went through great pains. Uh, we went through a store called Medley Music in uh, Bryn Mawr, and we, we cajoled, we did everything. And I'll never forget when we first bought it home and, you know, opened it up, and, and, and then the possibilities were just endless. We didn't realize at the time that what we had was going to become like so iconic in the world of hip hop. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but, 
and the, you know the and the thing is like yeah, you hindsight's could actually 20, hindsight's twenty twenty, but uh, you know rarely do you, you you just all you knew no. was was this was going to further your interest and especially in yeah. like I said you know this this influence of electronic type of music that you uh, and your friend I, I I believe your friend's name was Jeff is that right Yeah Jeff Jeff Coulter and yeah, uh, yeah so Jeff was a drummer Yeah right Yeah so so. He had already started amassing a huge amount of equipment, and and so we were already we were like we were like most people who like were into had keyboards like in bands and stuff like that. We were we were much further ahead in terms of what we can make all the stuff do. You know, uh, we knew how to we knew how to use you know um, program. Uh, you know, he knew how to like work a bukla, for instance. You know, oh, uh, and modular systems. You know. So, um, it was, uh, it was, it was a revelation for us at the 808 because you could create a drum program of your very own design, you know? And yeah. Yeah. You could, weren't, you weren't uh, subject to just sequences. You could yeah, start from scratch could, with yes. a, a bass and snare, a hi hat. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the, the whole thing. Yeah. It's, yes. it's, it's a really special instrument. And here's what was really cool about it, was that each instrument within the, the snare, kick, hi-hat, cowbell, woodblock, bass drum, right? Yep. You could give them their own outs. They each had their own outs, so you could run them through the board. So the snare drum has its own channel. Everything had its own channel. So you so could add effects of uh, uh, change. But you can make it so with the and what we did is when we perform live, the snare and the kick drum and everything, it shook it We're shook. Huge. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if y'all know if you've ever seen Kraftwerk perform, that's what we wanted. No, I we no, wanted- I had not. So uh so that's yeah. that was the that was the inspiration. That was the inspiration because it's like it is a metaphysical experience, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh and that's what, you know, I, I came into this really, and it's funny because I, I, I look back on it years later, I almost want to laugh, but I was a beat maker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and I never actually that, you know, it's funny, that whole thing didn't even occur to me till like when I was writing this book that, uh, that cause I know, I know all the, everybody does beats now or beats, 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 right. Beats coming out everybody's ears, you know, uh, but I, I was like, really like, uh, uh, I came in as a, one of, one of the, really the first first beat makers in 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 hip-hop and everything so um yeah so that gave you that gave you a foundation uh which uh, yeah ended up being uh you know pretty uh influential for the rest of your career yeah yeah so now you're playing in your own band uh and you're also i think producing a little on the side right right uh well what happened was we uh you know again i i i, I you know i wanted a record deal and we had joined a um, a band called Rhythm Alliance. Uh, they took their name from a Mondrian painting, you know, Rhythm of Straight Lines. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, different blocks of color and everything. Uh, so we joined this band, and Rhythm Alliance was more like a, a Talking Heads, uh, New Order, you know, because we were, you know, I was a big Joy Division fan, and so when uh, when uh, Ian Curtis had died, and they came back and reformed this new. Mm-hmm. And uh, power corruption and lies to me was one of the most brilliant. Because you know what the thing is, power corruption and lies. Really, when you listen to it, they just basically took 
all the elements of like craft work, but crafted it in like making radio records, yeah, right? Pop, pop songs. Right. And that's, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. That's what I, that was my whole thing. But the, the problem is, and I was in a band with some really, really talented cats, you know, uh, and a ba- our bass player was a, you know, classically trained, you know, upright bass player and, uh, had a wonderful singer, a guy named Danny Mason from Boston, uh, Greg DeSabatino, called him Doc Drummer, you know, uh, had a great whole thing happening. I, they just couldn't, they just, they just didn't want to do anything that was, that, that was like radio friendly. Cause it, cause everybody in Philadelphia at the time, it was this whole post-punk thing, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that you had the whole new wave influence and everything. And they wanted to really, you know, their idea of a good time was to sit and listen to like, you know, four or five sides of flipper, you know what I mean? Like, uh, and, and to me, it's like, yeah, I appreciate groups like that, but I wanted a record deal. And, uh, and the only way to do that is to make hits. So, yeah. So we, we were all, we were really into the, the very, you know, somewhat obscure European stuff, the electronic stuff, like craft work and everything. But, but we left that group to do, to just to do our own dance music production. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, that's what, that's what led to us forming another group with a, I had this, uh, found this wonderful female singer, uh, named Robin, uh, Robin Carter, who sang like, she was a huge Tina Marie fan. And that was like perfect for me, you know, yeah, R&B uh, and, background. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. White chick singing R&B. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she played, she was a very proficient saxophonist. And, um, so we formed this group and, um, uh, we did a lot of shows and, um, uh, and it was the, the one fateful show that we did at a place called the gallery mall in center city, Philadelphia, which is a, a mall that is really frequented primarily by, you know, uh, African-Americans. And so here we are playing in this mall and people are, you know, looking at us and, yeah. uh, but, uh, we, I met a, a, a group of young kids who came over and asked if we could, they said they were a rap group and if we could do some drum programs for them and, uh, yeah, sure. Come on over, brought them over to our house in West Philly studio. And, uh, we, we, uh, we, we made a, we made some, we did a bunch of tracks and, um, and the rest is, uh, you know, that's how I end up in virtue. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so you, uh, you, you bring uh, both your band's uh, work and uh, the yeah. what was the name of the rap act? Uh, it was Kid Fresh. Kid Fresh, right? And to yeah. Frank Virtue uh, yeah. and and Vince DeRosa, uh, and they're not they're not impressed much with your work. But they nah. really liked the, uh, the 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 production work that you'd done with Kid Fresh. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, they, it, and they gave you cash for that. Yes, the money and uh, and I thought, okay, this is a a life changing this- moment. Here's the crossroads. It was a life changing moment. It's like, okay, uh, this is what this is what uh, this is what I'm going to do. You know, yeah, I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna make I'm gonna make hip hop records. Right. And you know, the thing is, it was easy for me because I loved R and B. Mm-hmm. Okay. And to me, the beats, I already knew the beats, you know, I already, I already knew it was like, it was, it was easy. It, not I'm saying it, it wasn't, uh, it was very natural, 
You know what right, I mean? Right, 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 right. You had an affinity for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and that's the, that's the moment that things really change and you become a, a hip hop producer. Right. Yeah. So I have to ask about Roxanne's Revenge, because that was my first introduction to hip hop. I spent really? a summer in Philly and uh, uh, and um, uh, in Delaware uh, working as a carny. Um, really? For a very short period of time. I, I, I very quickly realized that was not the life for me, but I did spend a summer doing it. And, uh, and, uh, the guys around me, you know, were all into this music. I knew nothing about it. A suburban white kid in, uh, uh, you know, the outskirts of Los Angeles. And, um, uh, the song that meant the most to me was Roxanne's Revenge. And you had a little piece in that. Well, yeah, it's um, it was a late. It, what had happened was she, um, Marley Marl was a uh, DJ on. He be, later became a big producer, and he produced Roxanne's Revenge. He was a DJ on uh, WBLS um, in New York with Mr. Magic, and Roxanne Shante, I believe, lived in his building in the projects, and he and UTFO was this hip hop group that had its record Roxanne Roxanne. Yeah, yeah, but so, it was kind of like a sort of a, if I remember right, it was it, it was kind of a, a hot, I, I, yeah. kind of a love letter to her, right? Yeah. So he made, she made this record, Roxanne's Revenge. You know, it's an answer record. Answer records were a big thing. Yeah. And uh, and it was like, oh, it. And here's the thing, it was like really just her voice, live, like right onto on a cassette. Uh, Frank actually mastered the twelve inch from a cassette not even a studio master tape. And um, while he was mastering it, uh, I, I knew about pop art records and my roommate, Rich Murray was a filmmaker. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, called up, called, we called up Lawrence Goodman, the owner of the label and said, we can, we can make a video for you, you know? Mm -hmm. And we shot the video at my house in, in West Philly. It was funny because, you know, you know, Mr. Magic and Marley Mar, you know, those guys are, Really, you know, in terms of like hip hop influence, right? It's massive at the time, you know. Oh, right. WBLS in New York, you know, you had uh, there were two stations. There was um, Hot ninety seven and, and WBLS, and uh, you know they they were competing with each other on. And so, so the Roxanne Shantae record, uh, we did that video. It was a really really great video. Yeah, because I, I had a video production company too with Rich, and um, yeah, it, it was just a little a side job. But when I read that, I was like, "Oh my god!" I, I remember I, I that was my my introduction. I was it's about a year before I think the Beastie uh, Beastie Boys come out, where you know rock fans began to say, "Hey, this is not so bad. This is kind of interesting." Uh, yeah, you know. So uh, you know, I had a, a little bit of an early introduction that maybe I should have pursued uh, a little bit more. But I, you know, I, I will say it 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 did influence me uh, with my uh, writing uh, in my band uh, in my twenties, uh, Infrared, and I began to um, start doing uh, like rap verses and then you know sing the choruses sort of thing right uh uh early on uh and and this is the you know, mid mid 80s so uh so you know it, it it definitely had an impact on me you know a lot of people thought it was a fad you know yeah. 
Oh, and, at that um, time. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But, rap, but, rap was just a fad, right? Where we are now. Hip-hop. <laughs> yeah, rules. Yeah. Cross-pollinated into just about every form. Matter of fact, I got these guys who are like, um, they did the first, um, they did a orchestra to Kimmel Center in Philadelphia. It's classical music and hip-hop. And they, they've reached out to me a bunch. And I finally got back to them the other night. And I said, look, uh, I, I said, I told him I could get behind it. I said, you know, if, if, if hip hop, like, you know, it gets mixed with like bluegrass in a way that where it's sort of like a cultural imperative, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it means something, you know, and it works and, you know, but like, to me, like hip hop with classical music is just sort of like, it, it, it's got too much of a, of a gimmicky act. Yeah, aspect to it you know right and i just did something really hokey about it and i and i said it to him in the nicest way i said i i am not impugning upon you know your guys talents and capabilities i just don't i don't understand it it's not it doesn't you know i don't see like why you know what i mean yeah Is there it, some- it's not going to make that much of a difference uh it's just too wide of a spectrum to uh to find a cohesive middle right yeah, yeah. All right, so let's get into the record business because I, I think your your first job was with Nice Town Records. Uh, yeah. So tell us about uh, about that and what your your duties are. And and I also want you to expound a little bit on how the business worked in the night in the early nineteen eighties. Uh, and and we'll we'll talk a little bit more on how it changes uh, through you know as, as you go through your career. But I think this is the first time you kind of really get uh, yeah. an in depth knowledge on how the business works. Well, yeah, it was. Uh, I go to uh, I see this ad, and I call this guy up, and he tells me he has this R and B label in West Philly called Nice Town Records. I said, "Oh, perfect," you know, because I'd already been doing production and everything. Now I'm going to go because my goal at that point, I wanted to start a record label. So now I'm going to go work for one and I'm going to get paid to work at a record label, right? What, what kid doesn't want that? Yeah. So uh, and how old I, are you at this time? You're like 21, 22? I am, uh, let me see. This was, um, I am, yeah, I'm probably 22, 23, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Um, and I walk from my house at uh, 48th and Hazel to 52nd and Parkside. And, you know, I, I don't know, for some reason, I thought it was a lot closer than it was. And I had walked quite a way. I think at this point, I've gone like 16, 17 blocks until I realized that, like, I was the only white person within everywhere I looked, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I, I come upon this, this daycare center and, um, you know, uh, the, the, Ted's mother, Ted Wing's mother, ran the daycare center. It's a big daycare center, and she she lets me in, and she tells me to go sit in one of these chairs, and she's like barking at me, and it's a chair that's like eleven inches high for little kids. <laughs> and I'm sitting in this chair, waiting for Ted. Yeah, and uh, so he who, who he, is the who is the quote unquote owner of Ted uh, of Nice Town, yeah, right? Yeah, Nice Town Records. He, he says he's, it's like a one one guy operation. Oh, right. So he uh. He basically um, takes me up to the third floor of this building and brings me into this room. It's all uh, crumbling plaster, windows nailed shut, dilapidated, and um, desk and a phone in a chair. And he has a copy of Billboard magazine and a printout of the retailers that report to the black album charts. 
in Billboard, right? Right. And he's saying, so, well, first, I, you know, the record I was calling was, uh, he, Ted was at work for the prison system. And Bill Cosby did a uh, stand-up record at Greaterford Prison. Uh, he did a stand-up routine, recorded it for his, because uh, he, it was a thesis he was working on for his PhD. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had told the prison that they could exploit the stand-up any way they wanted as long as it benefited the Prisoner's Activities Fund, which Ted was in charge of. So now Ted has this Bill Cosby record. And this is what I'm now going to be sending out to the um, retailers who report to the Black Album charts. I believe there was about 127 retailers that reported to this chart. And, you know, I, I... it was very, I caught on very easily. It was about sending these guys, sending these retailers records and, uh, encouraging them to report your record to the, when to the bill on the billboard call every week. And you did this by sending them free product. And, uh, I made, you know, Ted rented me a car. So I drove from Washington, uh, to New York city, to Brooklyn, to, um, to, uh, everywhere. And I visited these retailers, bringing them the record and giving them free product. And I learned how to work the charts. And then I, you know, it was the same application for the radio charts. Same deal. You know, you just uh, had to figure out some type of barter system. It was build, building relations. Building relationships and getting your record reported. Right. Yeah. And that's what it was about. And um, and I was helped a little bit because at the time, Bill Cosby, because the Cosby show was huge, yeah. did a uh, jazz compilation. So a lot of retailers thought I was calling about that record, you know, and they report my record, you know. Oh, sure. Right, right, right. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, luck would have it. Uh, that actually helped uh, that uh, that Cosby had uh, a jazz record out and, of course, was obviously so successful out there uh, with the uh, with the television show. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So, yeah. And we did some other records, but, you know, it was a, I'll say this, nice town. And it was, I mean, look, I was on the, 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 in this room, in this building, and there was no heat, no air conditioning, right? I'd be in the winter, I'd be wearing, you know, a coat, scarf, hat, gloves, making phone calls. Work, I can work in the phones. <laughs> yeah. And that's what, that's what, that's what I did because I, I wanted to succeed, yeah, you know? Yeah. I yeah. wanted, I wanted it so bad. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to become this, you know, uh, and I, and you know, it's really between the production and learning how to chart records. I had really uh, developed a a pretty um, diversified, useful skill set, you know, uh, that I was able to apply later on. You know, um, yeah, yeah. It, even though it was miserable conditions, I was learning something that I considered to be very valuable. I, I think so. Um, and, and, and I, I want you to relay another life-changing moment uh, for our listeners here uh, where you really learn about integrity when you're there right. at nice town, uh, oh, somebody yes. comes in and, yeah. and, 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 and espouses some uh, wisdom that uh, really meant something to you. Right. Richard Barrett. Um, I didn't know it at the for the first time I met him. I did not know this. Now later on, Richard and I, when I, you know, finally I started making money and I, you know, I bought like a, a mansion out in the suburbs in Gladwin. Uh, Richard was a neighbor of mine, and we both had uh, 
you know, he had a green Rolls Royce and I had a, uh, a black one. We both had the same car and we'd see each other and hang out. And, uh, he, uh, was there looking for Ted and, uh, he went up on the third floor where I was and he sees me on the phone. He comes in, he's just sitting there and, uh, he's watching me and, you know, introduces himself. I'm showing him what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, but I, I guess I, I told him that, you know, look, I'm the, you know, I wish we had better records. And he goes, well, why don't you, you know, go and make some records? I said, yeah, because it's Ted's label and it's what Ted wants and everything like that. And I'll never forget this. It's that Richard said, man, he goes, I wouldn't call anybody about these records if you paid me a million dollars. He said, because when they hang up the phone after you call them, they're going to be like, yeah, that's the guy that called me about that record that was basically, you know, Crap. shit. Yeah. 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 And it says, yeah. so, so, uh, yeah. And that was in, I thought about that, you know, you know, uh, I didn't stay there much longer after that. Um, no, you, I, you, you meet the Nicola brothers and, yes, uh, and things begin to change, right? Yes. Uh, now I had been to studio four once before because when I was up at virtue, I had gotten involved in uh, a project uh, for WDAS Radio for Black History Month, and it was a rap compilation record for Black History Month. Oh, nice. So mm -hmm. we uh, we we did we did some mixes at Studio Four. So I just I'd been there once before to do some mixes. So we had a session booked at Studio Four. Ted and I went down there, and um, Joe Niccolo was our engineer. I'd never met Joe before. Uh, Joe did all the night sessions and the hip hop stuff at studio four because he was a low man on the totem pole. Uh, his twin brother and the other partners did the more moneyed session rock records during the day. And so Joe was our engineer. And, you know, as a result, Joe wasn't really making a real living at the studio. So he just got off his job at stereo discounters. And so, Ted, Ted is, we're in the studio and Ted is being very loud and bragging about this deal and that deal, you know, it was all fictitious, but you know, whatever, <laughs> but I rolled my eyes and Joe saw it. Mm -hmm. So when Ted left the room, Joe's like, how did you end up working for that guy? And I told Joe, I said, you know, man, I'm just, I want to start my own label. I'm just learning. And, but you know, but and Joe said, you know, I do too. So we exchange information, but I didn't see Joe for a long time after that. Um, because when we went back to Nice Town, uh, I think it was the next day, uh, I was sitting in Ted's office and I saw these records. And it was a song that I knew, that I had heard, uh, called Gangster Boogie by a Philadelphia hip-hop artist named Schooly D. Right. And Ted said that Schooly had just been there, I think that morning, and... Uh, you know, wanted to talk to Ted about distribution and Ted basically turned him down. And, uh, <laughs> I was, I was, uh, dumbfounded because I thought, Oh my God, this is like, so I grabbed Schoolie's number off at of Ted's desk. Smart of you. Called him up and, uh, went over to, I called him up. We talked, he was all excited. And I got to his house and something had changed. And he basically shut the door in my face. And uh, I found out later what had changed. Uh, for some reason, he thought that when I called him that I was an African-American 
trying to sound like something I wasn't. Oh. And, and actually, it was just me. And, you know, I'm, I've never been one of those uh, white people in hip hop who, who take on a African-American um, um, vibe. Five. Yeah, yeah, I, I never. I, I always thought there was something incredibly cheesy about that, yeah. and yeah. so disingenuous and everything. I think we I, call that cultural appropriation nowadays. Yeah, it is, and it's just it's really stupid. Um, I'll tell you a quick little story. You know, years later, when Ed Roughhouse, uh, uh, Jerry Greenberg, who is uh, the guy who signed oh, uh, Led Famous. Zeppelin, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, his daughter worked at uh, Capitol Records, and she had signed a hip hop act. And Jerry knew that her, her, the head of marketing was a friend of mine who I knew from Columbia. And he called me up and said, could you call over to your friend uh, in capital marketing and put in a good word for my daughter's project and everything? And I said, yeah, no problem. I said, before I do that, I want to hear the record. So he gave me his daughter's number. And I called her. And she didn't really understand what I was asking. And she was like saying, no, I'm not sending you a record. Who are you? And I said, you know what? Call your father. And I hung up on her, right? Yeah. When she called me back, like 15 oh minutes God. later, she was like, yo, Chris, what up? <laughs> just like, she got schooled by her dad is what happened. No, no, no. But the thing is, she thought by calling me back, she thinks like, well, this is a real hip hop. Oh, person. yeah. Oh, I, I oh better, so she oh, so better, she played the act. Right. I better take on this this persona. And yeah. I said to her. I said, didn't we just talk a couple minutes ago? <laughs> yeah. And it was just, it was really bizarre, mm. but yeah, it's, but so, so anyhow, so schooly, so, but, but so basically we started working together. We, we met with his, uh, his attorney and, um, you know, I had, I had, I, now I knew, now I knew what to do. You know what I mean? I knew how to set up distribution, manufacturing, and uh, marketing. I knew how to do all all, all those uh, all those cold days uh, uh, and and hot uh, hot nights uh, in the uh, in the uh, the attic uh, were paying off here. But here's what happened: that was like it wasn't just from for me in my life. Is that he had just did two songs? Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about Schoolie D and his influence. And you're probably going to bring up Gucci Time and PSK. Right? Yeah, PSK. Uh, they were really the first gangster hip hop record ever made because he really, there's nothing before it. Yeah. This, and, this, this influences NWA and ice oh, yeah, and, and, and the, the West coast guys. And, and yeah. Ice T talks about it frequently. If you like, you watch the evolution of hip hop, they all credit school D as being like the creator of gangster rap. Mm -hmm. So this record, you know, uh, it was recorded in a, um, in a eight track studio that recorded, um, the Philadelphia orchestra. And uh, there was no outboard gear or anything, uh, but there was a big, huge, you know, the old plate reverb units, the ones that are like, oh yeah, 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 they're like like a room, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> plate reverb unit, and um, and by running, if you listen to the snare and the kick drum and everything, and the snare is going through, and there's a gate on it, you know, it's a plate reverb with the gate, it's yeah, like that. <sighs> <So> big, yeah. <laughs> So you listen to this record, and there is nothing out at the there. time. Like, no, it was like it was so revolutionary, and I just think that something something happened that it was like I was at a place I had just gone through this like kind of like this 
thing where I was pursuing this and I got side turned to doing that. And I, I, I had learned, you know, how to market and promote in these very miserable conditions, you know, and, and, and now I, this record, you know, now I'm involved in this record, which was like this incredibly revolutionary record that nothing else like it out there. And it was just beyond being at the right place at the right time. It was almost like, uh, you know, at the, at, in Game of Thrones where, um, where uh, Bran tells everybody you're, at, you're at where you're supposed to be, right? Because mm-hmm. he foresaw all this, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, yeah, I think it was, it was preordained that, that I would be, I, w- I, was, I, was, uh, I was guided to go through all this stuff to be there for this record. Because you felt, this, did you feel that at the time? Oh my God! You knew it's, it, so you knew it with the playback. It was so infectious, and it was so different, and 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 I felt like there was some divine intervention that that led to me being involved in this record. Because what this what this record did was that it suddenly uh, everybody in the record business suddenly was it was about school ed, and they all wanted to sign them. And I was his guy. I was I was the manager. I was the record label. Yeah. You know, and it it basically next thing you know, I'm being courted by all these major labels. They're flying me to Los Angeles, and they're you know treating me like a king and everything, because I had something that they 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 didn't really understand it, but they knew that its appeal was infectious, and everybody, and you know, I ended up doing I did the first hip hop tours of uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Great Britain and Canada and, you know, doing shows, you know, um, you know, we toured with Big Audio Dynamite, you know, the Clash fans, you know, yeah. you're doing a show in front of like, you know, 1200 people and only 12 of those people are really there for, to, for this hip hop. the opening you know? guy. Yeah. School ED. Right. And it was like, you know, I got to tell you, we were taking hip hop to places it had never been. And a lot of times it was really was a dicey proposition. People like you know, throwing bottles and cans and, you know, people that don't understand, especially places like Scotland, you know, where people can be a little, little rough. You know what I mean? And um, it was it was a, a and, you know, say I wish I appreciated it more at the time. You know what I mean? Uh, but we were uh, we were doing something. Well, you're just running and gunning. Uh, I'm sure yeah, we're running. You had no. You didn't have time to stop and think about it. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why you write a book uh, afterwards. Yeah, that's you why know, you, you write. Get, get a chance to look back and go, "Wow, that really, really made a big difference." Uh, you know, and and these certain events, uh, you know, uh, had one thing not happened, these other things wouldn't have happened. Right. Uh, and and there's a lot of that in this book. So so uh, talk a little bit about how uh you know early hip-hop operated because it was a little bit different and you know you mentioned that the record labels were jumping all over school ed but they they were for a couple of reasons one of which was that production costs on hip-hop was like dirt cheap compared to what they were having to deal with with the rock bands right hip-hop hip-hop was was all independent labels and which hadn't happened since like the 1950s with rock and roll well, actually, well, actually, the disco era. There was a oh, lot okay. of it. There wasn't. The, okay, they, you're they right. They weren't even labels. They were really production companies, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the, the hip-hop spawned a whole slew. I mean, there were so many of them. 
There are so many of them. And, um, and the major labels saw this. They saw, they saw this, this onslaught of this music that was very, very inexpensive to make, uh, lifestyle, cultural marketing initiatives, you know, um, and they basically, uh, and as I said, actually, I said this in a, in, a, in the Questlove podcast interview, they colonized the hip hop industry, you know? Um, and so once the majors got into it, it was very hard to be independent, very hard mm-hmm. because, um, you know, they got, they, they got the money and the muscle, you know? Oh yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they dominate That's the golden retail. rule. You know, he who has the gold makes the rules. Yeah, they 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 dominate retail, they dominate radio, mm. MTV, everything. So, um, you know, we did. I did a lot of independent records, but uh, I had, um, I think, uh, you know, after I had hooked up with Joe and we yeah. started. I think started, that's July nineteen eighty seven. Roughhouse Records is born in Philadelphia, right? You know, I I it's that the date I have in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i guess yeah, we'll go with that <laughs> um, so it, it sounds like it was a fluid it was a fluid thing yeah it was very blurry you know um but um yeah so so we uh you know again you know because i i'm running school ed and school ed records you know and the thing is look you know i would i would have loved school ED to stay independent and and I think School ED could have been another like Luke Skywalker, you know what I mean, type operation. But the the thing is, he just wasn't into the business end of it, you know. He just wanted to be an artist and perform. And you know, um, and so we finally did the deal. We signed with Jive RCA, and uh, so now I'm, I have we have Rough House Records, right? Mm-hmm. And we did a deal with a company called Enigma. That was distributed through uh, Capital SEMA, right? Capital EMI distribution. So they had like what's called a uh, in the distribution business, like uh, same thing as like Brian Turner had with them. It's like a pick, pack, and ship deal with sales services thrown in. And uh, so the thing problem with the Enigma deal was that they were an an alternative rock distributor, and this was just. The, the owners did the deal because they thought, you know, hip hop looks like easy, low hanging fruit, easy pickings. But their sales staff and all that just weren't really in tune with the culture. And it just uh, it, it didn't really work out. And um, but at the time, um, there was a rock band in Philadelphia called the Hooters. Yep. Their producer was a guy named Rick Chertoff, who had produced uh, uh, Cindy Lauper. And Rick had seen, he would see me like doing these massive mailings because I was working records for other labels. And suddenly, you know, now I've got like eight or nine gold or platinum records hanging on the wall. And Rick would see all this and come in and talk to me all the time. And uh, something happened up at CBS Columbia Records. There was uh, whoever the previous boss was left and a new president. Rick called me up one day and said, you know, Chris, uh, we like we need to talk. <laughs> we'd like you to come up here to uh, to Columbia Records. Yeah, so let's talk about the 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 day at the Big Red Machine. The Big Red Machine, yeah, man. That yeah. must have been just crazy. Well, because I wanted I wanted to secure a major distribution deal. But, you I, know, they, by the way, that's a nickname for Columbia Records. Yes, the Big Red Machine, because they had those. Because they well, they created the uh, they 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 
they created the major distribution business back in the, yeah. uh, I think it was the 40s and 50s. They decided, why are we paying independent distributors to manufacture and distribute our records when we own Philco Ford air conditioners? You know, they own Fender guitars at one point. They had yeah. their own manufacturing and distribution facilities. Why can't just retool these plants and do records? Yeah, they, they are so, a conglomerate. Yeah. Yes. And then Warner's followed, and then obviously EMI later on, and you know, so um, so in RCA, of course, you know, uh, I tried to get a distribution deal. Uh, I think I'd actually talked to Capital, uh, and the thing is, at the time, I didn't have any artists. I didn't have anything in hand to show except for like Schooly, right? Mm -hmm. And the major labels, you know, these guys aren't going to give out that kind of money and that type of uh, royalty percentage uh participation a combination to somebody that doesn't have any artist uh, when i went up to the meeting uh i thought it was going to be a meeting just with me rick and donnie einer president of the company and it turned out to be with uh tommy matola who was the president of cbs records and um and then there was like seven eight nine maybe department heads and yeah. it was like walking into a boardroom and uh you know them them all going okay boy what do you got yeah well they 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 said well they said uh, i went to sit on the couch and tommy helped me back he goes no chris sit here and it's a chair facing them <laughs> and so now i got all these guys looking at me you know with their yellow legal pads and, you know and everything and so yeah i know tommy goes, so, chris, tell us what you've been doing and so I kind of like took about 20 seconds to align my my outline and I decided, all right, I'm going to answer this question. And I spent about a half hour breaking it down about how how I treat these uh, independent retailers, these club DJs, these mix show DJs. Like I treat these guys like gold, you yeah. know, if I tell them I'm going to send them something. I don't wait till I do a mass mailing. I do it right then that way they know when they get it like two days later it's like he's like wow he he sent it you know like personal you know, I didn't, attention yeah yeah but this is yeah this is this is what it was about for me because i took i took it seriously you know and i took my craft seriously and um you know by the time i got done talking they didn't ask me if i had any artists they didn't say what records he have coming out they just knew you knew the operation uh in this new world and they didn't yeah, they said, "Who's your lawyer?" And uh, <laughs> and be and I, you know, it's funny. I didn't have a lawyer at the time. And before I could uh, formulate a reply, uh, Donnie and Tommy stick their hands out and they say, "Welcome to Columbia Records." Wow, just like and that. that was that was the end of the meeting. And I walked to the elevators, like like thinking, "Oh my God, I I, I made it." I have a distribution deal with a major label, like like it was. Um, I um, yeah, it was probably you know besides some personal events that have transpired in certain times of my life, I have to say it was easily one of the happiest moments of my life. Yeah, it was and, everything you worked for uh, worked for just coming to fruition. Right, and, and, and for a lot of other for a lot of other reasons too. It, it was you know. For me, on some level, it was validation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's CBS. Mm -hmm. You know, the Columbia Broadcasting System. You know, it's a big, massive, respected oh, yeah. American conglomerate. And, you know, Columbia Records. You know, Frank Sinatra, Bob Dylan. You know, 
It's uh, Bruce Springsteen. It's like it's the it's the major leagues. Yeah. And they are paying me to go out and identify talent, sign that talent to a record deal, make those records. Right. And I'm getting paid to do it. Not just getting paid, but really getting paid. Right. You know. Right. And right. everything my you know, my whole now I'm not saying my standard of living didn't change, but my, you know, things got things were easy a little bit easier for me, you know. Uh I wasn't worried about certain things that I that plagued me constantly, you know. And um yeah, it was a uh it was it was a it was a great experience. And so now, uh Yeah. Uh, so now you and Joe are running with the big boys. You got budget and ability to sign. And yeah. I, I want to start bringing in some of the artists that you guys did sign. Uh, I, I, one of the first was, was it Cypress Hill and Chris Cross seemed to be some of the big names that really come actually, about at the right time. Actually, uh, our first record was a guy named Chiba. Oh, that's and right. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he wasn't the person on the original demo. We made the record, but the record charted, sold 25,000 copies, which wasn't bad, you know. Yeah. But uh, – but no, our first our first real I think success was uh, Tim Dog, uh, because not as an album project but as a single, it was uh, you know the it was a song called Fuck Compton, and it was a really dangerous thing to do, and we did it. A little and, bit, a little bit of the of the gangster warfare going yeah, on, huh? and we did it on CBS, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and the record I think charted it may have charted like number two. It may actually may have been gone number one, but it was the first we released the the, see the video couldn't get played on MTV, obviously. Right. Yeah. We did video for $3,000. We released the the video itself selling it as a VHS video single. It was the first music video ever sold as a commercial product where you could just go and buy the video in the record stores. You could buy the video. Yeah, it was. It's never been done before. We we're the first to do it, and we sold over a hundred thousand of them at nine ninety nine. Joe, wow, yeah, yeah. So the bosses must have been happy with that. Oh yeah, that was uh, like that's a we whole were, new model. Yeah, we 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 started, uh, and then uh, you know we uh, we had signed Cypress Hill. Yeah, and uh, the Cypress Hill record, you know, it was just. Um, it's just an, it was another one of those just a revolutionary record, like nothing else out there like it. They had actually, I you know, that's why I watched an interview uh, that they had done, and they talked about why they signed with Roughhouse because other labels wanted to sign them. We were the only people that wanted them to put out the records that they you know they they did these demos that we loved just the way they were. All the these other all the other labels were trying to say, well, no, you should really change this, and you right. should be less use yeah. that. Don't talk about smoking weed, all that stuff. And they took. We actually offered them the least amount of money of all the labels, and they went with us. And uh, and um, so you let them retain their authenticity. Absolutely, absolutely. That's another thing too. Uh, and I and I found this. I I find it. You know, I'm I'm is is a, is a record guy. I am most successful with artists who are self-contained, you know, and when I say self-contained, you know, when you have an artist that understands that the, 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 the culture that they are, that they are, um, that they're purveying, right. And, uh, what they're doing, 
how they want to be looked, perceived, and understood. If you can find somebody like that who can also write hit songs, I'll tell you this. It's like, uh, it's, it's, you know, but as we know, artists like that don't grow on trees. Yeah. Especially not these days where it seems to be more in service of, you know, uh, what do I got to do to change, to be successful as opposed to, you know what, I'm doing my thing and the success will come from, from being who I am. Yeah. That's the whole thing. You know, it's funny. Even if somebody has something and maybe it's not, maybe it doesn't work, right? Maybe it's just not applicable to popular taste, right? Mm -hmm. I can't get mad at somebody who has that conviction. You know what I mean? And, you know, uh, there look, there are labels that are very good that are very, very good at grooming, teaching choreography, dressing, you know, that's what they do. They're, there's, you know, I, I, I'll never be the guy that'll put together the boy band. You know, I have no interest in that, you know, and I never understood, you know, Oh, looking for, looking for a female singer, you know, like, you know, like, how could you be looking for something that you don't know exists yet? You know what I mean? I never got that. I never got things that were put together. And there were people, look, you know, Simon Cowell, he's genius at it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It, it's out there. Um, but yeah. I, I think uh, I think it's also a question of taste. Um, yeah. rare, rarely does that um, come across as... Uh, you know, I hate to reuse the word again, but this the authentic. It's uh, there, there. They, it, it, you know, the, the it's a veneer. Uh, the, the the it's about show uh, in right. that. Cypress Hill is not. <laughs> it's those guys are who they are. Right, and there's people who are very good, very good at doing things that are put together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at the the implosion of the boy bands, right? Uh, you know, it's it's funny how um, that if you look at male vocal R and B groups, right? They they kind of ended at the at like you know at the end of the seventies, right? And what brought them back was hip hop, right? And mm-hmm. if you look at everything going from uh, the Force MDs, right? The Force MDs. All the way to B2K, which I think was in 2004, that whole period, look at all those R&B vocal groups that happened, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of them I thought I loved because they were really more like coming from the hip-hop experience, right? And some of them were put together, you know? Um, but, but you know, again, yeah, it's about it's. It, I, I, I really, I, I, my inclinations are more drawn toward, towards artists who are who are self-contained. Yeah, they're fully formed in some way that you can see. Because I was going to ask how how did you develop your ears and become so successful at hearing uh, uh, and knowing that uh, an act was going to be a successful uh, artist? Um, but it seems like it's it's that you recognize that they have already figured themselves out. Yeah, but but also there's another thing too. It's that it's just like with the school ED PSK Gucci time, mm-hmm. right? 
it's like when I first encountered the Fugees in their manager's office. It was, it was like what what got me right away was uh, Wyclef with the acoustic guitar in the boombox. You know mm-hmm. that that to me, it's that that now see that combination right. That to me is a is a is a marriage of uh, it's a cultural imperative. You know what I mean? You have a guy who is you know from from uh, you know he's a, he's a Jamaican he's, right? or Haiti Haitian Haitian yeah. he's Haitian. So you have that. So you know that the acoustic guitar is a very very important part of Haitian culture, right? Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yet he's a He's a young man living in New York, New Jersey, who is also part of the of the hip hop generation. So for the boombox and the acoustic guitar and that 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 combination of like, you know, it's it just, you know, you have real gen. It, it was all genuine. Right. And it was all real. And that seeing that and, and recognizing it and realizing how unique it is and how how you know that could be something that is going to is going to work it's going to people it, it will it will resonate with popular you know uh, popular record buying culture well since you brought them up oh, we have to dive into the fujis and of course miss lauren hill um a lot of the book uh does uh talk uh in detail uh, on your signing of them uh, would would you say that is your biggest success you know what? Yes, uh, absolutely. And then I say this with respect to everybody. Okay, I say it with respect to everybody. For for I guess the for the world, yes. For Chris, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, obviously, you know, um, the Fugees were yeah a milestone event in my career. But I don't I, I, I don't know if I can call it more of a milestone than 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 school ED. You know, you've given the time and place. You know what I mean? You afforded uh, all of them the same amount of time and dedication, I think, is what you're trying to say. Yeah. And that's why that's why I just wish, um, you know, because, you know, I, I'm doing a whole new company now. Uh, Rough Nation. Right. And, um and, you know, I'm talking with a lot of artists and doing a lot of things. And I, I tell people like managers who, who come to me and it's like they have an artist and everything. And, you know, it's like it doesn't matter what I think of it. Ask yourself this. Do you believe in this artist enough that you would take out a second mortgage on your home to make it happen? Yeah, so that's the kind of dedication it requires. Uh, that uh, that uh, and 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 the 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 belief, knowing that for certain that the gamble of all the time and effort uh, is worth every penny. Yeah, it's uh, it's yeah, exactly it's a, because that's what you're asking the label to do. Yeah, that's what you're asking me to do. That's what you're asking me. You're asking me. Because it's not just about the advance, and everybody, everybody, everybody thinks it's about the recording advance. The recording advance is really just one part of it, right? Mm-hmm. It's if 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 you know if the size of the advance is is if that's what you're 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 basing a label's commitment on, then you'd think that we didn't give a shit about crisscross, 
or Nas or any of these groups. Because I'll tell you, it's crisscross. We signed crisscross, I think, for uh, signed Cypress Hill for eighty eighty two thousand five hundred dollars. Uh, crisscross for seventy five thousand dollars. The Fuji's now. This is a little bit later on. And uh, we had had a lot of success, and uh, no no self-respecting manager or lawyer was going to buy into the fact of us signing their artists for less than 100 grand. I think we signed the Fugees for like 125. Yeah, but that was um, the expectation at that time. I get yeah, you. That's the expectation. Mm. But and that's what stuff costs. You know, that's what it costs at that point. You know, to make a record. Um, but uh, it's uh, I you know I I look at all the other stuff that goes into it because when you when you sign, you know, th- this is the one thing that I-, I never worked for anybody, right? But yeah, you've you know always what? been an independent, right? Yeah, yeah. But I was responsible to a lot of people, a lot of people. And, you know, at one point, you know, you got, you know, between your regional people and your your in your studios and everything, just from, from in payroll, right? You know, you're, you're talking about like 38, 40 people, right? Then you've got the artists, the managers, then your partners in Columbia, everybody. You're responsible to all these people to keep this thing going. So suddenly it's your decisions aren't just about yourself anymore. You're thinking for everybody. And you're thinking, you know, because you got people working for you that, that they – they, you know, they work, they, they kill themselves for you. Right. Mm -hmm. But you got to make sure that there's a company that they can come to, to get a check to take home and feed their families, you know? Mm -hmm. And that, that becomes like a whole other thing. And then that, that really, that really brings your thought process to a whole new place in considering what you're doing when you're signing artists, you know? So, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a really difficult balancing act sometimes, you know? And, um, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always been about the career act, you know? Um, I never really got sucked. I mean, yeah, I guess the fuck Compton thing was a little gimmicky on some levels, you know, but on the whole, most of the artists, uh, Nas, for instance, you know, even though, even though we did not continue on after the first foray, um, but you know he's a career act. Yeah. You know I knew he was a career act when when the very first time I heard him, it wasn't it wasn't hard to discern that a kid of that age had was so lyrically advanced who could put together you know the metaphors and everything and be able to to deliver them with such uh with such ease and everything. It's uh that's that's what you're looking for. You know, um, and, uh, you know, then, then there's the whole production side of it too, you know, but you know, it's a, uh, again, it's, it's a very difficult balancing act. So the, the, the 1990s were obviously heady days, uh, for you. Uh, you know, I, I just, you're, you're, you're really ruling, uh, the, the roost here. Can we, can we talk a little bit how hip hop music changed and, and then how the record business started to change from the eighties to the nineties? Well, the eighties was, was the age of the independence. The nineties was the age of the majors. And, um, we were, we were, you know, we were part of that process. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that, um, I think that on the whole, 
it was a couple things. Hip hop was suddenly massive, right? And worldwide, worldwide, due in part a lot to Rough House. Um, and I can say that with total conviction. Um, you know, the uh, Forbes magazine did an article on uh, uh, celebrity, uh, whatever, celebrity, um, celebrities and money and branding and everything. Mm-hmm. And they, they did a highlight on what they considered to be the four biggest hip-hop labels. And that was um, that was uh, Bad Boy, that Puffy, uh, Russell Simmons, Def Jam, right. Master P, No Limit, and uh, Rough House, Chris Schwartz. Wow. And even though we all, our, our yearly billing was all within a couple dollars of each other, I think we were like $126 million for that year. And... Uh, Puffy was like a hundred and maybe um, thirty million or something. They valued us at a hundred and seventy-five million. They valued his company at like two twenty-five or something, right? Mm-hmm. The people who did the article a week later said we didn't take into account overseas because overseas we sold more records than anybody. You smoked because- them, right? Oh my god! And we. Uh, we still hold um, some record that I was told about for putting out the most amount of record music, hip hop music worldwide than any label to date. And I believe the reason we still hold that record and and it might be skewered because by virtue of the fact of the Fuji's, somebody'd have to have a Fuji's, which I'd be very. You'd have to, you know, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, they don't come around very often. Yeah, right, right. So, so why did Roughhouse shut down in 1999? It, it it seems a little early for the impending doom of the record business. Or were you guys just like a canary in the coal mine? Or no, 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 no. It had nothing to do with the record business. I. It was this. When Joey and I first hooked up, Joey was a studio guy. You know, and I was a studio guy, but I had become more of an all-around record guy. Uh, Joe's a studio guy. I was more of a record guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were you were kind of like an old-school record band, kind of like uh, Ahmed Erdogan and Jerry Wexler and uh, yeah. you know uh, John Hammond, people like that. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think what it was is that we had a very very close personal friendship for years and years and years. But then, you know, because Studio Four had one studio, right? Mm-hmm. Rough House had one office, right? Mm-hmm. Then Studio Four now has, we're in a building in Conshohocken, and we have like eight recording studios, a staff for the studios of like, you know, 22 people. Rough House became massive, took up, you know, two thirds of a 40,000 square foot building. And I've got a whole army under me. And Joe and I just kind of like on a – we just kind of – it's very hard to explain this, but this thing became bigger than either of us would have imagined. And Joe – and I will say this about Joe. The one thing that Joe – you know, in both Niccolo brothers, really, Phil and Joe, uh, they're both Grammy-winning producers. Joe knew early on he had that instinct – you know, most recording engineers and producers in the early days of hip hop in the 80s, they tried to produce hip hop like they tried to produce pop music. They they do a hip hop record and they make the, the drum sound clean and in. Uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Joe was like Arthur Baker and Rick Rubin. He knew early on how the audience wanted it. 
Right. The audience wanted it, wanted it gnarly, uh, bombastic. Yeah, that low end to be built up. That low end, that crunch, like yeah. that, what we call the bubble in the pedal, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, but that was Joe's world, you know? I think, I think the, Joe really didn't want the responsibility of the label anymore because we were both by that time multi, 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 multi millionaires. And Joe, you know, was, you know, could make his money just sitting in one room doing what he loved doing, you know, producing a record. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I had aspirations to go and, you know, and so that's why we, you know, it was everybody thought we had this like, you know, yeah, there was some, there was some harsh things had happened and everything like that, but, but it was really, it was time, you know what I mean? And, um, and I had an opportunity, uh, Warner brothers is the last great American owned next to Disney, great entertainment conglomerate, but you know, they, in terms of black music, they totally lacked. You know, their last things they had was Prince and Ice-T, you know, <laughs> and I wanted to be the guy mm-hmm. to bring a black music culture back to Warner Brothers. That's what it was for me. Mm-hmm. I actually took less money to go to Warner Brothers than the other offers I had. And I did it because I wanted to do something that people would remember. You know what I mean? And... um Unfortunately, it, it wasn't in the cards. Uh, only because um, I had, I had, we were selling records at Warner's. I had artists on tour. You know, I think we did like five million in billing in uh, in the first you know year. But uh, they did the the AOL merger with Time Warner Corporate. Oh, that's and then right. It didn't work out. The stock fell, and it was like the ripple effect, right? That happened in New York. That was the pond where the pebble dropped. But by the time the waves crashed in Burbank, it was like it was like a tsunami. And another thing that I should have done is that I should have released all of our stuff through because some of the see here's the thing I had some records where I had this group called the Outsiders. I put them through the ADA independent distribution, right? Mm-hmm. And we like you know four hundred thousand records. Then I had a group from Philly called Major Figures that and I won them as a result of a bidding war. And yeah, uh, Gilly the Kid, yeah, and uh, and that record uh, we did have a number one single, and uh, but the record I believe we did. Uh, I remember we shipped like seventy eight thousand copies, and that that for what I was used to at the time was uh, you know wasn't really happening. You know, I, I, I needed it to be more than that because at the time in, in, especially in black music, your first two weeks of sell through is what you are, you know? And, uh, I had, a I had a art, really fantastic R and B group from Philly called no question. They were originally signed to Philly international. And I did a deal with Kenny and Leon to put that record out. And we had a, some great songs. The group was great, everything. And what happened was, uh, Everything stopped one day. It, what, ADA went on chugging, but everything stopped at Warner's. And finally, a department heads, you know, because uh, they they blew out the chairman of the Warner Music Group. They blew out the heads of the labels. And a department guy said, well, until a new head of the music group comes in, he said, Chris, 
nobody's spending money unless it's the red hot chili peppers or our Clapton. You know what yeah, I mean? Right, right, right. That's what it was. That's what it was. Uh-huh. And it just, uh, uh, you know, it just withered away. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it's funny I, how we've talked so much about timing and how you were like in the perfect timing uh, with many of these events in your life. And uh, here's one where the timing wasn't great. You know what? But I'll take nine out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody would. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I'll take nine out of ten. And uh, and I'll tell you, the writing of this book, I'll tell you something amazing. Uh, I really, you know, wasn't thinking about right i mean i you know a lot of people have been telling me for years to write a book write a book write a book. oh your story's so fascinating you should write a book and i like i never you know really thought of it like that but uh there's a woman who she was my controller for for rough house and rough nation her name is Kay vaughn and Kay had called my wife and said you know can you tell chris he he needs to write a book and write if he writes a book i know that this company will make a documentary and this and that and the company she was talking to didn't want to make documentary, but uh, I, I, I decided to learn how to write a book and everything. And I, when I finally got my nonfiction proposal, I had a deal with another company to do a documentary before I even had a book agent, you know. And then a lot of other things now have transpired over the last year that have just been phenomenally, uh, just really like I, I, I feel like I'm getting another, another nice. Uh, a nice. I, I've been dealt a nice hand. Yeah, yeah. 2019. Uh, yeah, I, I found out I had a daughter that I didn't know about. Um, Thirty-one years old. You know uh, that I had met at Christmas time, which was a really, really wonderful experience for me. You know, oh, and everything has just been, um, you know, going great since. So let, let me ask you here in the closing minutes, how, how has the music business changed in the ensuing 20 years? And what's the new uh, vision for the, the new label, Rough Nation? Yeah, I, let me go back because you asked about 90s. I'll tell you what the 90s were. The 90s were the most profitable decade in the history of music. Yeah. Because we were selling CDs. Um, Miss Education, Lauren Hill, I think we sold that for twenty one ninety five, right? Uh, it costs 75 cents to make a CD. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you so the profit margins were pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and the bigger it is, the cheaper your marketing promotion is. So you figure three or four bucks. The rest is just pure profit. profit. Right, right. So if you saw the way that the, the amount of, amounts of money that were being made, it was just – and once that all went away and the, um, the uh, machinations of the internet basically put a stranglehold on that whole business culture, um, it, uh, it had made everything much more transient. We became, a sing- we became a hit single business again Yeah. because kids were – it's all about the, the song, yeah. right? Albums and- are the thing of the past. Right. And the fact that now you can point to the fact that uh, 18% of global music revenues are independent artists who don't have record deals. They're just putting their stuff out through you know, YouTube and getting monetized and stuff like that. So it's a whole new um, level playing field. And um, I, I myself... Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, I've always been working with artists and everything, 
But it's just like right now, I just happen to have like happened on some really, really, you know, um, great self-contained groups of people. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what the future holds, but, uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I think it's, uh, I think it's gonna all come to fruition in a good way. So uh, uh, there is a lot of talk that the record business is coming back. That uh, the last uh, yeah. se- several years, uh, you know, there is incremental growth each year. We're going on, yeah, we're going on it. This is our. This is I believe the nineteen is our fourth year mm-hmm. of incremental growth, and labels are starting to get speculative again. I'll tell you what really got me was in. Um, I was working as a consultant for Sony um, in the. I guess like around two thousand. 8 2000 from 2004 to 2011 and uh i would go to these a&r confabs up in montauk or up at sony music in new york and so everybody would talk about what artists that they're that they're working with or what they like and what they want to sign and i'll never forget sitting there in a room one day and there's like you know there's like it was like 25 a&r people all saying Oh yeah, and I found this one online. I found, and every single person found what they were dealing with online. And I suddenly sat there and said, "Does nobody goes to see anything anymore? You don't want to go to a studio, go see it live, or you just see it online and you find out who the manager is." I don't know. I, uh, I, I guess if that works for people, I get it. But I, I think you got to. I think you got to get to know an artist you have to see if they are an artist you see if they have that conviction you know what i mean yeah you need you want to you know you want to sit with somebody at least you know have a drink with them or something you you know i i don't know i i just um I, I i just i feel that that's a that's an important part of the process and i and i see a lot of it a lot of it is now really it's about uh, social media metrics versus live performance and to me, well, if you're talking about sustainability, a career, a career type of artist, yeah, you. I, to your point, uh, and that's been your thing uh, throughout. Is you y- you have to have a relationship. You have to see that they have the goods and will continue to have the goods for a, a long period of time, right? Absolutely. And the thing about social media metrics, right? Mm-hmm. Social media. Is uh you know let's face it uh P T Barnum said it the masses are the asses you know <laughs> and for every ass you can get a couple bucks right yeah yeah and so if you're if you if you're if you're guided by the lowest common denominator of wanting to just sell the most tickets in the shortest amount of time God bless you you're on the right track right but if you look at what the internet points to as being the most the biggest videos that viewed by anybody, it's all people dancing. None of them are like artists. It's people dancing. You know, there's some of these videos that are like, you know, uh, 720 million hits, you know, 2 billion hits. And it's, it's people like there's one of these three Chinese girls doing hip hop dancing. I'll never forget this. And it was, it was massive. So, and, but then there's a lot of stupid stuff too. Just people being obnoxious and it's funny and, you know, so it's like I, um, 
Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's all it's all ephemeral. It's uh, it, it's one and done. It's uh, it's a you know it's a it's a it's a, a hard piece of candy that lasts for you know two minutes. And that's 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 not artistry, right? Yeah. So to to me, right? Do I want to sign a uh, a hip hop Twitter personality, or do I want an artist? I want the artist. Right. 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 Yep. Well, God bless you. That's what we all want to see out there. Yeah. So, uh, Chris Schwartz, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on Deeper Digs and Rock today. Awesome talking to you, Christian. This is I. I really enjoyed this interview. This has really been great. I can't wait to hear it. Ready or not. Here I come, you can't hide Gonna find you and take it slowly Ready or not, here I come, you can't hide Gonna find you and make you want me Now that I escape, sleep, walk away Those who correlate know the world they kick Jail bars ain't golden gates those who fake, they break. When they meet their 400 pound mate, if I could rule the world, everyone would have a gun. In All right. I really, really enjoyed talking with Chris Schwartz today. He is a true hip hop pioneer, an amazing producer and record executive. He saw early what others missed, uh, myself included, a real record man in the old school vein. He got it because he loved it. He knew something special when he saw it. Um, I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, this is our first trip into the world of hip-hop or rap music. And like we say around here, rock and roll is the music of the latter half of the 20th century. And this is a part of the overall story. We're excited to add another wrinkle. But I'm going to make a point, maybe a little controversial, but something I've been thinking about for a while. While certainly hip-hop came out of rock and roll or a portion of it, I believe keeping it as a part of rock and roll is akin to calling rock and roll just amped up blues. There are so many differences. It really needs to to be in its own category. Uh, Hip-hop today is as original as rock and roll was back in the day, like it or not. I see rock and roll holding on to hip-hop just so rock and roll stays relevant to the newer generations. To me, it's just oldies desperate to maintain their youth by co-opting something where that thing doesn't have much in common with the other. Certainly not anymore. Mostly, I'm pointing the finger at the Rock Hall, but also to any who want to suggest that hip-hop is rock and roll, but just for a new generation. I'm I'm not making a critical argument, but one of etymologies. Uh, you know, we can argue all day about the importance of the music of today versus yesterday. Yeah, certainly, I, I feel pretty confident that the music being created today doesn't quite have the same impact that the music from 1955 to the late 90s did. But it's a completely different world we live in today. And to be fair, the full story of hip-hop hasn't been written yet. A lot can still happen. It is the music of the street today, the music of the people, the, the same spot rock and roll held in the past. So why do we need a distinction? 
Well, most importantly, it's we don't live in a monoculture anymore. It's not just American culture being listened to either. That means the fragmentation of tastes along with the extraordinary ease of artists to produce work makes it hard or virtually impossible for any musical artist to reach the peak of prime rock and roll and stay there like the acts of the past. I mean, is there going to be an act from the last 20 or so years selling stadiums like the Rolling Stones do almost 60 years after their introduction? As I've said before when asked, uh, what is the music the current generation uses as touchstone or cultural pillars? And I usually answer that it's it's not music at all, but probably social media. Music doesn't inform this current generation as it did the boomers in Gen X. To be sure, it's there, but more in the background than during the peak rock and roll age. It's consumed differently, and its import is not nearly the same. Not not too dissimilar to the music before the rock and roll era, at least from where I sit at present. So I think it's time for hip-hop music to be treated as its own original creation. To be honest, it's weighted down with being included in the term rock and roll. Sure, it owes some nods to where it came from, and rock and roll does this with country, blues, and gospel artists in their hall. But I think the hip-hop pioneers need to create their own hall that builds its own pantheon of stars. Who knows? That may help elevate the art form and get it out of the shadow of rock and roll. Okay, that's it for the soapbox this week. Again, thank you, Chris Schwartz. Please go out and grab his new memoir, Rough House, from the streets of Philly to the top of the 90s hip-hop charts from wherever you find your reading material. All right, next week, it's movie time. Uh, With me will be Molly Bernstein and Philip Dolan talking about their new documentary, The Show Must Go On, a fantastic film on the great promoters in rock and roll. Until the next time we uh, talk, you know what to do. Keep up the rockin'. Diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org 
and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.